Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hi guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, we sit down with value investor, author, and prolific writer, Vitaly Katzenelson. Vitaly is CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Investment Management Associates, an advisory firm focusing on value investing. Our conversation spans from art and creativity and investing, stock market history, why investors should always pay attention to valuation, and Vitaly's love and discipline when it comes to writing. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the discussion. So one of the things that you do in, you know, most of your letters you put out is you put out uh, one of the watercolor paintings from your dad. And I actually find them, I mean, I, they're really beautiful paintings. Um, you know, the joke I, is that people like, you know, when uh, somebody is caught reading Playboy, they say they read it for the articles. Well, I think oh. they, they literally, they, most of my subscri- email subscribers read my articles for the, my father's pictures. So that might be true. <laughs> that might be true. Um, <laughs> But what I wanted to sort of just ask you and see if you have any thoughts on this is, and I've read some of your other articles. It seems like the arts and going to art galleries and going maybe to the opera with your, your daughter, these are important things that you guys do. So I wanted to hear, do you think like the exposure to arts and creativity and creative minds has in some way helped you as an investor? And if so, um, how so? So it's kind of interesting. So I'm, I'm working on the book. And it's called Intellectual Investor. And the reason it's, in, it's a kind of the next evolution of intelligent investor, and, uh, which is kind of Ben Graham's Bible of value investing. And if you think about Ben Graham's Bible of value investing, it basically has two things. It has a philosophy and it has a recipe. When most people, when you ask an, like an average person, you know, what is value investing? They say, well, it's just buying cheap stocks. And, and when, and, uh, that means that those people who read the book and they say that they just got the recipe out of the book. They didn't get the, the, the philosophy and the philosophy of all investing. And I, I have this, like, that's kind of the first chapter of the book I'm working on. I call it the six commandments of value investing. Right. And the six commandments of value investing is basically, it talks about uh, margin of safety. The market is there to serve you, not the other way around. The, the true risk is the volatility. I mean, is a permanent loss of capital, not volatility, etc. Right. So that's the philosophy. But if you think about in general value investing, it's a very left brain kind of uh, endeavor, right? Very logical, you know, uh, you know, and, and my argument is that in the future, we're going to have to compete a lot more with computers a lot more with quantitative investing, right? And I can't compete with computer, you know, I, you know like it's very difficult to compute, compete with rule-based investing, right? Because, you know, your, you know rule-based investing is, you know, or algorithms uh, don't need to sleep, then, you know, they can work 24 hours a day, and uh, there's so much computer power out there. So my argument is that we need to, as value investors, we need to evolve into 
you know, we need to add creativity to investing. And that's, you know, so, and, uh, and therefore, you know, uh, I try to, I mean, in my journey in life right now, I'm trying to evolve into becoming a lot more creative value investor. That's why it's kind of the intellectual investor is kind of intelligent investing plus creativity. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I think, um, well, when's the book coming out? I'm, you're, you're I, so, so this is a true story, true story. I, uh, so I've been working on it for about two years. And this is, a, it's, this is actually an interesting journey because my first two books, every single thing, yeah, when I sat down to write a book, I already had a publisher. You know, or I already had a contract. Um, so, but this time around, I felt like I wanted to write a book for myself. And so I decided that I'm gonna, it's gonna take me to write a book as long as it takes. So I don't wanna, you know, I did not wanna have this, it was not a goal-based book in the sense that I didn't wanna say, I wanna get it done in three years. I just wanted to kind of write an instruction manual for myself. So, after, so I've been writing for two years and then I stopped, and then I stopped for six months. I got distracted by the COVID and other things. And then I looked at it about two weeks ago, three weeks ago, and I realized I didn't like anything I wrote except the first chapter. And so now I'm kind of going back and rewriting the whole thing. And you know the best part about it? Like if this was my first or second book, where which had a publisher and had a deadline, I would be devastated. I would be very upset. Mm. When I discovered that, you know, everything, now, it's not like what I wrote was junk. It's just individually it was maybe useful, but as a, in the context of the book, it wasn't. Uh, I was not upset at all because I'm like, okay, well, going, I'm going back to drawing board again. So that's, that was it. Well, when that comes out, we'll have to hopefully have you back on. Um, <laughs> it might be a couple of years down the road, but we'll, exactly. we'll do it. <laughs> yeah. um, the other thing I wanted to ask you, there's an article that you wrote uh, recently, the Fisher Random Chess Stock yes. Market. Yes. And let me just kind of set this up. You, t you talked about the game of chess and basically up until the mid nineties, chess was mostly played through like what you called an open system, which was a series of first moves that yeah. were studied and mesmerized at the beginning of the game um, yeah. that were just mostly mechanical in nature. And then in the, in the mid nineties, Bobby Fisher, who became a grandmaster, um, or maybe who was a grandmaster at the time, I'm not sure, um, but potentially one of the best player, chess players of all time, he kind of came up with this concept of the random chess board. And what that was doing is putting the pieces like randomly on the board and it rendered that memorization aspect in the open system basically useless. So you, you kind of made this analogy to this random chess concept to sort of the current market environment we're in today. So I wanted to ask you just if you could maybe explain that analogy a little bit more and your, your sure. thought process there, and then how maybe that has influenced some of your positioning in your portfolio, perhaps. That's a good question. So the, so the, if you look at the, you know, like traditional uh, game, you have an opening, like you have an opening phase, mid game, and you have end game, right? And you're right. So if you, if you play the traditional game, if you're a serious chess player, you literally spend hundreds, maybe thousands of hours studying different positions. So when you, in preparation, and when you play the game, you're right, it's like the beginning is very, fairly mindless, right? Because you already know, like when your opponent makes a move, you already know the response to that. The, in the Fisher, uh, 
the randomization of the first rank, which is a Fisher Random Chess, what it does, it basically, every time you play this game, it's a brand new game, at least in the beginning, because you are not prepared for this. And I would argue that most investors, if, if you think about it, when we invest, a lot of things we do are basically, uh, we're looking for a pattern. You know, we, you know, it's a, you know, like, you know, we say, we say, okay, well, when this happened in the past, this is what we did, okay? So most investors have, uh, if they've been investing for a while, they kind of have this pattern recognition in, you know, in their head. And I would argue that this pattern recognition could be dangerous today because it's a different game. It's not the, the recession today is not your traditional 2008 or 2001 recession or whatever the last time you had a recession before. And uh, therefore, going, going automatically in and buying cyclical companies may not necessarily be the right thing to do. And because we have no idea how it's going to play out. Because the, you know, if you think about the last time we had a pandemic was 100 years ago, and the economy was very different, right? Everything was different. And you know, so in our portfolio construction, we are, so the more uncertainty you have, the uh, more uh, the more careful you have to be about every decision you make. And today, so one of the things we did, we reduced our position sizing, just because th there is a high probability that we'll miss something. Okay, um, so that's one of the things we did. Another thing is we are basically have almost very little exposure to cyclical companies. Okay, um, we have almost no exposure to travel stocks. Okay, so we have, you know, we normally would not even buy airline companies, like this is just the quality of the business would not be high enough for us. But today we have uh, no, you know, we have no, no, no travel stocks in our portfolio at all. So, uh, so those kind of modifications we are making. And, and so, Every time we make a decision today, also we double down on the quality of the balance sheet, et cetera, and, uh, you know, and uh, management quality, you know, and so on. Picking up on your, your discussion about um, this, this time being different, you know, it, you can make that argument with respect to COVID, but it's also something, an argument people have been making for a long time now with respect to what's been going on in the market in general. You know, when we, when we look back at the past decade, things that have worked over long periods of time have either not worked as well or not worked at all. So things like value investing, for example, or yeah. buying high quality companies. You know, if, if you were to look back now and say, what was the best investment strategy over the past decade, it was probably something along the lines of buy expensive, you know, uh, high growth type companies yeah. that are large cap, you know, something about something like the, a combination of those factors. And, you know, there's, there's several reasons people have cited for that. You know, some have cited the fact, you know, Fed policy. If, if the Fed has artificially suppressed interest rates for a long time, that might be a better environment for those growth type companies than it is for maybe the types of things like a value investor would be looking for. Yeah. Or some others have argued that maybe it's, it's a fund flow thing, you know, and if you have these regular contributions coming into 401ks and those contributions are mostly going into passive funds, then those funds are being invested irrespective of price. And so that would could continue to drive up, you know, the more expensive companies relative to the, maybe the cheaper companies. I'm just wondering how you look at all of this and, and what you think the outlook is for fundamental investing going forward and what you make of this past decade in terms of what's happened. 
So it's a, it's a great question because so the, if you look at the return for stocks in the long run, if you just kind of, if you um, deconstruct the returns, right? Over the last hundred years, you know, uh, stocks produce return roughly about, let's say 11% a year, more or less. The, but, you know, um, 6% came from earnings growth. I'm sorry, start over. Uh, 11% a year, um, about 6% a year came from price appreciation, about 5% a year or so came from dividends, okay? If you deconstruct, if you deconstruct the price appreciation, then you would see that the return basically comes from two sources, either the earnings growth and price earnings, you know, either going up or down. So over, over a long period of time, the price earnings movements kind of cancel out. So really what matters in the long run, so if price earnings, in other words, if price earnings has not changed in 100 years, really it would be just earnings growth and dividends. That's what explains long-term movements in the stock market. That's, that's all that matters, right? Now, let's put dividends aside for a second and look at the stock price over the last, over, you, know, you know, of the stock appreciation over the last 10, 11 years. And what you find is that you basically, the earnings growth for the economy in general wasn't that great anyway, okay? And most of the return for stocks came from price to earnings going from average to much above average, right? Now, if you kind of, if you look at these stocks, if you, if you, if you look at value growth stocks, right? So growth, growth companies, what it means is that basically companies that grow in earnings at a faster rate, right? But, you know, so what you also find, so they, you know, so they get some tailwind from earnings growth. So, you know, the earnings are growing at a faster rate than uh, average company. We get that. But what you also would find that their price to earnings have expanded so much more. So if you were a kind of a growth investor, you benefited from not just from earnings growth, but also you benefited tremendously from price to earnings going up a lot. At the same time, value stocks that have a lower earnings growth, their price to earnings actually declined or hasn't moved much. So, so you have that dynamic going on. So the question is, why did it happen? Well, I would argue it's a very similar to, like value versus growth is very similar as uh, bond, like short-term bonds versus long-term bonds, right? Short-term bonds have a short duration and long-term bonds have a long duration. So when interest rates decline, bonds that have a longer duration, the 30-year bond would go up a lot more than a five-year bond. So growth stocks have a long duration, that's why they benefited. And value stocks have short duration, that's why they haven't either have remained flat or declined actually. They, um, and in fact, you would argue, and this is, this is the point uh, to the flows, um, the, because indices constructed, uh, especially in the big indices like S&P, S&P 500 is constructed based on a capitalization. The larger the company, the more, the, you know, the more space it takes in the index. Therefore, when somebody, you know, when you have inflows into the stock market, the money flows into larger companies. And that basically, and those larger companies were the ones that are growth companies and that benefited them. Um, and so the, uh, I forget, like the top five companies in the S&P 500 are 21% of the index or something like that. And these, so, and the, so it's a, that's, that's part of what happened over the last 10 years, you know, so. Yeah, uh, I'm sort of, I'm sort of wondering 
you know, the thing I think of as a value investor, you know, we're very different than you because we're quantitative value investors, but we're both trying to buy based on value Mm -hmm. is, are we in trouble until these things reverse? So if the Fed continues to do what it's been doing, and, you know, you can argue that a lot of the consequences of what the Fed is doing will be felt more in the long term and maybe more of the benefits are in the short term. So they might keep doing it for a while. And if these fund flows don't reverse, if more people get, keep getting passive and they keep, you know, putting money, more money in the bigger stocks, you know, do we need those things to reverse for us to do well? Or can this get to such a point that we, it gets so out of whack that we can do well even if they don't? So I think we, we, we may approach kind of the 99 to southern point at some degree where the, like, if in 2001, if you were a value investor, that was one of the best years, you know, it paid, it paid off all the previous pain you suffered through, you, paid, you got paid off handsomely. Um, so we may get, we may get, uh, so the, the thing is this, the price to earnings is a pendulum. So when you have, when, when your return comes from price to earnings going up, Price earnings is a pendulum that at some point when it stops going up, it actually doesn't just stay there. It starts, it starts swinging to the other side. In fact, my first two books, you know, the Active Value Investing and Little Book of Service Markets, that's what they talked about. Like you know, I studied that and I realized that like it's historically price earnings went from below average through average to above average. And when it mean reverted, it didn't just come back from above average to average. It's historically usually went to below average. So, I would argue that I don't know when. So the, you, know, you asked me a question of when, and I have no idea. And I'm basically investing as if the music will stop at some point. The famous words of Chuck Prince of Citigroup was, why was he doing crazy loans in 19, what, 2007, 2008? He said, well, we were dancing while the music was playing. And if you are responsible managing somebody else's money, that's not the right thing to do. Though it's been, it's been, you know, I would argue it's been more successful strategy than just being responsible over the last 10 years. But I think you know, people come to me and I'm sure it's the same thing with you guys and say, this is my life savings, don't screw it up. Like I can't, I can't, be, I can't be dancing just because the music is playing. So what I'm trying to do and you know, is buy high quality companies, make sure they're undervalued and I know that at some point this will produce hopeless superior returns, and I should be willing to. Uh, I'm, sh- you know, like you go to a prom, so you're at the prom at the high school prom, and all the kids, all the cool kids are having fun and they're getting drunk, right? And you're a geek and you're sitting at the, you know, you're, you know, you, you know and uh, you're, you're basically you're not drunk and you're responsible, etc. You know, at some point that party is going to end, and you know, you, and I, and I, and I, so right now you may not feel that smart. Just the same way, if you were a responsible investor, you would not feel smart in 2006 or 1999. But you know, historically, every single time these parties have ended, you just didn't know when. So I, you know, I'll be there. I'll be, you know, I'll be there to drive home responsibility when the party ends. So. Right now, I think Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, and Netflix make up about 23% of the S&P 500. So to mm-hmm. your point, these market cap weighted indices, you know, are heavily weighted in just a few names. Mm-hmm. One of the things that you, so you, you wrote an article on this. You also talked to Josh Brown about it, which is yeah. 
you know, you can, you can have great companies. Um, but like what happened in the seventies, what happened in even 99, 2000, there's great companies that were then that were, but their valuations were so far out of whack, um, that, you know, when the bear market came, it, it took, you know, maybe even a decade or more to, to regain some of those losses. So, you know, do you, maybe do you want to just expand on that a little bit, um, that just cause it's high quality and it has a name like Microsoft or Google, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a great investment from this point forward. I think that's, that's, yeah, no. So I think the nifty fifties, you know, so what happened was this in 1960s, um, you know, at the time the market was dominated by banks, right? And the banks had this list of basically like 50 stocks. Like if you buy, if you want to be in the stock market, that's what you buy. And they were nifty fifties. And some of them you recognize today, like that would be the McDonald's, Coke, Procter & Gamble. It's kind of the American, like the, the companies that used to make America great, I guess. You know? <laughs> I'm not going to get, get political on this. <laughs> but, the, but, the, but when you think America in the, in the 80s, 90s, to thousands, those were American great companies. The companies you're, when you're growing up, your parents would want you to work for them, right? But they were also, McDonald's was one of them, but they were also Avon, Xerox, and Polaroid, the Kodak, and other ones that some of them went bankrupt, some of them don't exist anymore. I mean, uh, some of them are just uh, irrelevant today. But here's the thing. So at that time, you were just told, buy those companies. And guess what? From 1968 or 1965 to 1972, every time you bought these companies, you made money. It didn't, you know, this, those companies only went up. They did never, never, never declined. But the problem is, and again, they were phenomenal companies. And if you look at, let's, let's look at McDonald's for a second. I think in 1962, uh, 1972, it only had a, 2000 stores or something, or even less than that. Okay, it's, it was a relatively new company. They haven't really kind of conquered the world. They haven't spread the, uh, the obesity to the rest of the, you know, to, uh, uh, to, to the rest of the globe. Coke at the time was, uh, even though it was an old company, you know, it was at the time 100 years old, but it was still, you know, from a sales perspective, it still was a you know, relatively small company. Okay, and, uh, you would argue that, you know, either, well, if you look at Coke and McDonald's, and the reason I pick on those companies is because when you look today in Facebook and Google's, et cetera, you can argue those are kind of asset light companies. So it doesn't require much capital for them to grow. And I agree with that, except if you look at Coke and McDonald's, McDonald's is, you know, is franchisor. So whenever somebody else opens a restaurant, it costs them nothing. And Coke sells syrup. Uh, so again, there was no physical limitation that says these companies cannot grow at fast rate at, you know, uh, for a long period of time. So anyway, if you look at Coke in 1972 or McDonald's in 1972, those were, the, you know, the world was their oyster. Now, if you bought them in 1972 after seven years of phenomenal returns, and you would have paid at the time, I forget the numbers now, but let's say 50 to 60, 70 times earnings for them, for the next 13 years, 12, 13 years, you were either down 30 to 50% or you, it would take you basically 12 to 13 years to break even. Just imagine this, if you, bought, if you, you buy a company and you wake up one day, it's done, you, know, you put $100,000 into it, now it's $50,000. And 
and it takes you, it took a long time for people to break even. And the reason for that was because when, when it's a one rule stock, it means everybody's buying it. And when everybody's buying it because it's a great company, because it's a growth company, they ignore that, you know, that they're overpaying for the business. And it took basically 13 years for the Coke and McDonald's. And by the way, almost every, every other company on that list to grow into its earnings. Okay, so the, what people forget is that there is a difference between a good company and a good stock. There is such, you can pay too much for a good company. Okay, and it's very difficult for people to imagine this about Google or Facebook or or other ones because you look over the last 10 years and these companies have delivered a tremendous return. But guess what? So was the case in, so was the case with, McDonald's and Facebook's, and, I mean, I'm sorry, so was the uh, case with McDonald's and, uh, and Coke in the, in the, in the 60s, 70s, in the, in the late 60s. The thing is, it's very difficult, you know, you know, view, you know uh, none of us here were born in the 60s, so it's very difficult for us to talk about Nifty 50s, but if you think about 1999, and think about Coke in 1999, or Walmart in 1999, right, again, Coke was trading again at six, you know, uh, 60 times earnings. Walmart trade was trading 45 or 50 times earnings. And here's the interesting part. Those companies were basically haven't gone anywhere for 10 or 12 years. If you bought it in 1999, again, you would not have, you, it would take you 10 or 12 years for you to break even if you own either one of those companies. So what's, what's interesting about this, think about it, it's a people learn nothing over the, you know, the same people, like, you know, obviously probably were different people who were buying it in 1999. There were people buying it in, in, in the 70s. But people basically learn nothing. And that's why history kind of keeps repeating itself. So we are kind of in a deja vu all over again because people who are buying fence stocks and don't care about the price are going to learn the same lesson again that, you know, that previous generations learned in the 70s, in the 90s. I want to go to the opposite end of the spectrum from the FANG stocks for a second and talk about value investing. You know, one of the reasons I like talking to people like yourself is, you know, we're pure quantitative value investors. You take a very different approach. You're actually digging into these companies and you're analyzing them. And, you know, when I, when I look at value strategies and, you know, this is sort of an oversimplification and probably refers more to the recipe, like you talked about before than the actual philosophy, but I sort of look at three camps of value. I look at the Ben Graham type people who are buying the deep value, really cheap stocks. I look at sort of a Warren Buffett approach, which might be more of a blend of buy the high quality companies, but try to buy them cheap. And then what I call like sort of a Bill Miller approach might not be the right word, but more looking at growth companies, but discounting them back to the present and saying, I can buy companies that are expensive now, but they will be a value because of how they're going to grow. And it seems to me like you do a little bit of all of this. You know, you, it seems like you have some deep value names, but you also own Twitter, which you're sort of looking out in the future and saying, you know, Twitter may be a value based on what it's going to do. So I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about your philosophy of, for value investing and how you look at it. Yeah, so I, I found myself, I, you know, I'm going to start calling myself, I'm a kind of eclectic value investor, right? Because you're right, because we, we own companies that would be, would fit the Ben Graham's recipe, some of them, and we own some of them where either the volume is understood, something obfuscates them, and so they don't look statistically cheap, or where there is a value in the future growth. Because there is, a, there is volume in growth, right? So you would argue that 
the reason Google stock has done well in part over the last 10 years, because its earnings have grown tremendously. So that earnings growth has created value as well. Um, so, and Bill Miller actually is kind of interesting. Bill Miller is kind of, uh, he is in the between. He's either Ben Graham value by airlines right now, right? Like he was, you know, I heard, uh, I saw him quote it's that if you're short airline, you're short the virus, something like that. So, uh, so he's on one side <laughs> of the airlines, on the other side, he's, uh, uh, he's buying Amazon, like not even, you know, before it was a, you know, kind of household name and they, you know, and everybody had to own it. He was buying, you know, 10 years ago. Um, so I, I think, Value, you know, I think, and this is, you know, I, you know, maybe I'm eclectic, maybe a creative value investor, but I think value can live in different forms. And my job is to identify it. And uh, so I try not to be dogmatic about it. But again, say, I'm dogmatic about my philosophy. I'm very dogmatic about my philosophy. The approach, never the same. Um, I would encourage your listeners and readers to read my write-up on Uber. I did a 13-page write-up that worked, uh, uh, worked you, works you how you can approach a company that's lost $5 billion last year that had never had a profitable quarter as a value investment. And I just kind of go through that and put it through a value framework. Um, and which would never, like, so the problem is, you know, the problem is this quantitative strategy, and I think this is the difficulty a little bit, it's incredibly difficult to capture that ambiguity. Like you would, if you look at Uber, you would say, this probably would not pass any strategy of yours at all, <laughs> right? No, um, I don't think but, so. Yeah, no, but, but if, you know, if you read my write-up, you see how actually it's a very, uh, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's actually I consider it to be a value stock, believe it or not, you know. So, and we, you know, and we own it. And that's, that's sort of one of the things we've been thinking about a lot as quantitative investors, especially with COVID going on is, you know, I've been trying to identify holes in a quantitative process because one of the interesting things about COVID is you sort of have this breaking point now. And, you know, if we're value investors and we're looking at trailing 12-month earnings or trailing 12-month cash flow or something like that, well, the day COVID hit, all of that changed. You know, whatever's happening in the next 12 months is going to be totally different than what happened in the previous 12 months. And so I've been thinking a lot about what are the advantages someone like you who's sitting here, you know, who's going through the balance sheets and you know, who's reading the annual reports has over us. So could, and you've mentioned some of them already, but can you talk about what you think some of the advantages your approach might have over a more quantitative approach? I think I have a, a reach for imagination. <laughs> uh, just, you know, just let me, let's, let's talk about, um, okay, let's talk about airlines. You know, like I, you know, I wrote about this. So, um, I think it's an interesting case study here. So like historically, we've never really liked airlines because I just, I just don't like a business where you have very large fixed costs and you have, it's very cyclical business. Um, and, uh, and then Warren Buffett kind of buys them in about five or six years ago. And the, and the reason he did it because he basically realized when the industry consolidated, it became a lot more rational and there was pricing power developed. And I think it was a fairly logical decision on his part. We still didn't buy it because I didn't feel, you know, I did not, still did not like the business. It was a better business than before, but I just didn't like it enough. Anyway, 
what was interesting, we, we learned about two months ago that Buffett, who was the largest shareholders of, uh, shareholder of airlines, sold all of his position uh, in March, like in, in uh, I think in late, uh, mid-March, some, sometime mid-March maybe. Um, and the reason, but what was more even interesting about that, he increased his position two weeks before he sold them. So this is going back to the Fisher Random Market, you know, Fisher Random Chess. He, at first, I think Buffett behaved, you know, he was playing the traditional chess game and he looked at airlines, oh, okay, we are in recession, you know, airlines get hit, we buy them. And then he realized, well, this time it may be, it may be different. And that's why he sold them. Okay, so here is the thing. Um, it's possible that it would take airline, much longer for the airline business to come back. Uh, I, you know, like I, when I say this, I really don't know how the future is going to like. But there is a possibility. There is a probability there that's not a very low one. It's fairly high that this business will change for a long period of time. Yes, people will travel again. Okay, but at the same time. Um, will the business trouble come back to the level where it was before? Because I think companies are discovering today that a lot of meetings that used to be done in person could actually be done over Skype, Zoom, or uh, Google meetings. And so that may actually, that may reset to a lower level. Um, also, also, how long would it take for people, like even if you have vaccine again, how many people now, I'm sorry, if you have vaccine, let's say even three months from now, how many people will actually take the vaccine? You know, and, uh, and how many will say, well, you know what, I want to wait more you know, until it's proven that it's, it doesn't have side effects. So and while all that happening, these companies have tremendous fixed costs and they're bleeding tremendous amount of money. And therefore, suddenly they have to issue a lot of debt if they can at very high interest rates, or most likely what's gonna happen, they'll be issuing a lot of equity and diluting their shareholders. So when you, so when my point is this, when you look at the numbers from, uh, uh, from a year ago, those numbers may mean very little because the capital structure of these companies going forward may end up being so different. And therefore the earnings power will be very different. And even like if you look at company like the one of the bluest stocks in the Dow is Boeing, right? Well, before the Max accident, but you know, before it's a Boeing is one of the highest quality companies. But if demand for flying is lower, you know, if demand if demand for planes is lower, and plane is one of those assets that has a very long-term life. So suddenly Boeing's new planes are competing with the Boeing's old planes. So it's possible that number of planes Boeing is going to produce over, over the next five years is going to be a fraction of what it did over the previous five years. So how do you look at Boeing's earnings power you know, last year and say, that's our base case? I think the base case might have been reset to a much lower level. So that's, you know, that's kind of the new thinking that we're going through today. It's a little bit too obvious. The, the problem I have is this. It's a little bit too obvious to some degree. But um, as a quantitative investor, like as a, I'll give you another analogy. So, uh, and this, again, it's a, in the too obvious case, but commercial real estate to me is uh, uninvestable today because 
you know, because company, you know, if you are, if you are, if you, uh, if you have a call center, if you have a call center, you have two thousand employees driving twenty, thirty minutes there every day, uh, and then you realize, well, Com actually, it's kind of interesting. Comcast, ninety-five percent of the employees in the call centers work remotely, mm. and now Comcast realizes, well, you don't nearly really need to have our call centers in Colorado or California. We can just basically, when we hire people, we can just look to hire people all over the United States. So suddenly there are no physical limitations of where people are. And so we can be actually choosier whom we hire and we may actually be able to settle for lower wages. And those people may be able to work from home and those who don't, we're just gonna go to WeWork or Regus, Regus, Regus and just rent space there for them. So suddenly kind of geography, you know, kind of geography stops mattering this much. And suddenly you realize maybe you don't need this much office space. The last thing I wanted to ask you is you talked about Buffett before changing his mind on airlines. And yeah. you know, one of the things I've seen in your writing as well is you've also been willing to publicly change your mind. You know, when the facts dictate that you want to change your mind, you know, you've been able to do that. And you know, that's something I've been trying to instill in myself. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you do that. If, if you have a process by which you challenge yourself or if you have you know, people who disagree with you that you try to follow, I'm just trying to do a better job of that myself. And so I'm wondering if you could talk about how you know, that process is that allows you to critically look at your strongly held beliefs and potentially change your mind. So it's a very good question. I have some friends who never publish, you know, like never don't write publicly about their holdings because they're afraid that once you put it in the public, it's very, you know, you kind of become married to the holding and you start being objective. And I can see, and I can see the, uh, that could be a concern. And um, so the way we deal with this is this, when we buy a company, we clearly identify why we are buying it. You know, we clearly identify our assumptions. And then kind of the Keynes famous saying, when facts change, we change our mind. When, when, uh, when we, you know, when we look at the company and start, and suddenly the, you know, the, our, we see our assumptions and, you know, no, no longer valid. I'll change my, I'll change my mind and sometimes I do it publicly. We, as an example, I probably wrote more bullish articles on SoftBank than almost any other company. Uh, and then last year we sold it. And I wrote my explanation, here, here, here's the assumptions we made, here's what has changed. Um, it, I try to, um, so what I try to do, I try not to publicize as many, so I write quarter letter to clients, sometimes 20, 30 pages long, and I maybe in every each letter I you know, highlight 10, 15 stocks. I only probably publish maybe write-ups on four or five companies a year because I want to limit, you know, I want to limit number of companies are, that are right about exposed to the public. And I think that's one of the ways to mitigate that, you know, is that, you know, um, I never write about, never publicized my, my write-ups in small companies because I'm afraid to move the stocks. And I don't want that. I don't want to influence stock prices when I write. Um, but it is something I always aware of. This is a, like, you know, the point you bring up is a very good point when I write something positive about the company and I change my mind, 
first of all, and this is, I'll be honest, the reason, one of the reasons why I don't like to publish my write-ups about companies in public, you know, uh, to the public is because somebody can buy this, somebody, I'm afraid somebody will buy this without doing their research. Because I may change my mind, new information may come out, I may change my mind tomorrow, and I don't feel like I have an obligation to kind of, to disclose that. In fact, um, after every, every time we publish a write-up, when you know, I publish uh, my analysis of a company, below that, I tell people this. I said, this is, you know, this should be, if you read this and you like what I wrote, this should be the beginning of your research, not the end of it. Because I just told you about what I thought today. I might have made mistakes. I, I may change my mind tomorrow, but you will not know that. And I think this is something that, this is what bothers me about, like this is probably, whenever I get anxiety about writing, is this. Uh, publishing you know, my, uh, my articles in public is this. Because I don't want, I try not to give people fish. I try to teach them how to fish. Mm -hmm. And when I publish those articles, the idea behind it is to, you know, to show them my thinking. It's not really, it almost doesn't matter what I'm writing about, is to show them the logic of, the, of analysis. Uh, Jack, I'm not sure if I answered the question, but it's a kind of, it's very. <laughs> no, you did. Yeah, no, you, you did. Um, yeah, once, you know, it's there, a, there's a lot of conflict. There was a lot of internal <laughs> conflict in this answer. So, yeah, you know, we, we feel the same thing. You know, when you, when you write, or for me, it's like value investing. You know, when I write very strong, positive pieces about value investing, I think about what if someday I change my mind, you know, or, or like deep value investing, buying like the, the absolute cheapest companies. What if someday I decided, you know, the arguments against that were better than the arguments for it. Would I be able to, after doing this for this long, would I be able to go out there and write something that I changed my mind? I, I always wonder whether I'd be able to do it or not. I wrote a 37 page write up on Tesla. And I wrote it because I bought the car. I loved it. You know, I love the product. I love Model 3, you know, and I started doing a lot of research and I realized basically the electric car is the future. So, which is, you know, and just to be clear, we don't own the stock. We haven't owned the stock, even though, and uh, if you read this write-up, so the bulls are angry at me because this write-up is not bullish. Bears are angry at me because this write-up is not bearish because I'm really, well, after you read the write-up, you can see what I think about the industry, about Tesla. I'm a big fan of the, of the product, but at the same time, you don't own the stock because I just, it's a path-dependent company. You know, anyway, so the, the point is this. Uh, Sometimes, you know, you know, I think, you know, what people don't understand that some, you know, sometimes you, you look at the company and you arrive to a point where you say, I don't know. You need a bull nor a bear. You just say, you've done the research, you say, I don't know, you know, I don't know, and you just move on. And I think this happens quite a lot. And um, to me, like, because I probably, we probably look at, look, look at 50 companies and, you know, before we buy, you now we look at 50 companies, we buy maybe one out of 50 we look at, uh, because we only buy maybe a handful of companies a year. One last question yeah, before, yeah. before we wrap up, and this is, so you immigrate, your family came to the U.S. in what was it, 90, 91? Yes, 91, yes. Okay. And did you know any English at that point? So, so I studied English in school in Russia. Oh, you did? Okay. And what, no, yeah, but you have to understand, so the way in Soviet Russia they taught you English, you memorized it. So 
I remember um, when I was, I don't know, eight years old, I remember the text is still stuck in my mind. I wake up at seven o'clock in the morning, I open the window hmm. and brush my teeth or something like that. Something, you know, and so that, that, you know, so I memorized the English. I really, it, my English was probably good enough to buy cigarettes and milk. Hmm. That was about it. But what's also important is that in Russia, they taught you British, not English. And what you realize that two different languages, especially from, under, you know, from understanding, because if you listen, listen to British, it's, you know, each word is separate, you know, separate from each other. Americans don't speak in words, speak in, they speak in basically in sentences. So it's a, it took me probably six months or a year until I could actually understand somebody on the street because it's just it's so much faster language than British. Uh, yeah. Do do you think that I'm curious as to what you contribute your uh, ability to write very well to? I mean, because you you are a very good writer, so I'm wondering, um, did you just read tremendously as a kid or something, or what is there something you can pinpoint there? Well, I think it's a skill, right? I think it's a. I probably spend more time more time on writing. Well, let's think about this. Um, I write, I get up 4.30 every day and I write for two hours a day. And I've been doing it consistently for years and years. So in other words, every year I spend 720 hours at least writing. Most people spend a dozen of hours, you know, mm. a year. So if, you, so if you do something long enough, I think you just get better at this. And I've been doing it for, you know, I've been doing it for 15 years and Every you know, every day I get maybe incrementally better, and that's it. I mean, there is nothing else to that. Uh, and but I think the the big thing is this: I love doing this, and because I love doing this, you know, I'm, I was able to stick through that. And also, when you write, you know, when you write, um, you you have to overcome fear every single time. Every time I sit down to write something new. I have this fear that I have no idea if I'll be, you know, if I'll be able to communicate this. And the whole process of writing is trying to get things out of your subconscious. On the, you know, I, I'm sure you guys, when you write, sometimes you finish what you, you know, after you finish writing, you read it, and you almost feel like you're an outsider reading something that you didn't write. Because it was, you know, the, the thoughts on the paper are basically were residing in your subconscious and the process of writing helps you to extract them. Mm -hmm. So uh, anyway, so yeah, so, but I think the, it's the love for writing and I think just doing it for so long and being consistent about doing it. It's just, it's, to me, it's almost like a religious experience. Two hours a day, every day. There's a quote out there. It's like, read what you love until you love to read. Yes. So it reminds yeah. me of that. It's like you're, Naval, you know, Naval, 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 yeah, yeah. Absolutely. In fact, I tell my kids, you know, so the, I tell my, my, my daughter, my, my 14 year old daughter loves to read and she lives, she reads, uh, uh, fantasy books. And I'm, I, I liked it so much because at some point she'll graduate to different books that are, you know, that are more thoughtful. Right. And, yep. uh, you know, absolutely. Uh, I think that's a, I think writing, you know, probably the writing is one of the best things that happened to me, you know, as a 
human being, you know, aside from having a you know, my wife, my family, etc. But as an individual, I think it's just made me so much more thoughtful because it's a writing is a very active thinking process. It's a, you know, because for two hours a day, I can't, you know, it's a, it's a focused thinking basically. Mm -hmm. Right. So I feel that's probably one of the best thing, you know, if, if I can look at myself and any success I had as a professional, I can attribute it basically to writing. That's just, it made me so much more thoughtful. Oh, that's pretty powerful. Well, listen, Vitaly, we're coming up on uh, sort of the end here. So we, we just want to thank you for the time you've spent with us. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Jack, and, Justin, uh, thank you. No, this, you guys are terrific. Thank you. Where can people go if they want to learn more about you? Okay, so I'll give you two. So for those who like to read, they can go to contrarianedge.com. Um, and those who like to listen, we have a kind of a lazy man's podcast, which is basically, like imagine my articles read to you by professional, not me. So, and they can go to investor.fm and just basically listen to my articles read to you by somebody else. So cool. We'll put uh, those links in the show notes as well. Absolutely. No, it's a, uh, thank you guys. All right. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.